we had decades and decades of people saying too many people and now we have we're entering an era of too few people and we never had this moment where that porridge was just the right temperature you know this is global insights by network 2020 in a year filled with monumental demographic shifts we witness india surpassing its neighbor and rival china in population size a significant milestone with potentially far-reaching consequences. So I would say China's facing a major demographic shift, not a major demographic crisis. Meanwhile, France finds itself embroiled in nationwide protests as the country grapples with the repercussions of delaying the national retirement age, driven by its aging population. There are multiple responses to this, ways to adapt. It would be good if we start to, to learn from each other and also see what to avoid. And while the developed world continues to confront the challenges posed by an aging citizenry, developing nations are experiencing rapid growth and youthful populations. The global population recently surpassed a staggering 8 billion. Today, we delve into the critical questions of how these profound demographic transformations are shaping the future of geopolitics. Joining us is Dr. Jennifer Shuba, a scholar at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Shuba is a leading expert on political demography, focusing on the implications of population trends and particularly population aging. Through her research and publications, including her book, Eight Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shape Our World, she aims to educate the public about the significance of population trends and their policy implications. Moderating the discussion is Courtney Doggett president of Network 2020. Welcome, Jennifer. It is a real honor to have you here today. Um, we have, I think, a lot of good topics to dig into. Um, and the reason why I wanted to have this conversation was actually uh, based on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the, um, the fact that Russia's demographics have long been on my mind. And so I, I was wondering what the war in Ukraine might do in that situation. And so our research led us to Jennifer Shuba. And, um, and then I realized that the topic is just so much broader than I could have possibly realized. And, um, and so with that, I would love to just start off, Jennifer, if you could just please just give us a primer on what the levers are of demographics and really how they connect to geopolitics, just so that we're all on the same page. Sure, a little demography 101. Uh, well, thank you, Courtney, for uh, finding the research and inviting me here because I think uh, there's like the Russia-Ukraine news and, and events, there's really no story out there that I can't view through a demographic lens. And so part of what I like to do in my work is teach people how to read the world through demographics. So the basics are really simple. It's that subtitle of the book, Sex, Death, and Migration. Just three elements go into changing population size or composition. And I like to think of them, fertility, mortality, and migration as really three dials that might be turned up or down uh, to differing degrees. And they produce this really infinite combination of outcomes per country. We also see these shift over time. So if we zoom out and think about how we got to this 8 billion milestone, which we hit in November, it took 
from all of human history until around 1800 for us to have our first billion people in the world because that mortality dial was really way up there. But as we start to get a handle on how to tackle and lower infant mortality and child mortality in particular, we more people were able to live to those reproductive ages. And so we are turning that mortality dial down, but the fertility dial was still pretty high. And so we saw this exponential population growth last century. We started that century with 1.6 billion people, but ended with 6.1 billion. And I think likely most of us who are here on this webinar today, we were born during that century. And so when we think about population, I we're really conditioned by what we were born into. And of course, since that time, we've added our, our two extra billion people, but we're really getting to this time where um, overall population growth has slowed tremendously. The rate of population growth globally has been falling since the 1960s, but because of the way population works, really because of math, what we see is lots of people piling on top of the earth but not really the tectonic forces that are obscured, which is slower population growth and declines in fertility over time. So, you know, fertility and mortality are incredibly powerful when we think about global growth. And that migration piece, that third dial, it of course comes in when we're no longer talking just globally, but about individual countries. And so that really makes a difference as to whether or not we have, um, you know, population growth or shrinking in countries as well, and of which groups. All right, terrific, thank you. So my next question, um, the youth bulge, what is it and how has it impacted geopolitics for good or for ill? And looking out at the horizon, which countries might be negatively impacted by the youth, by the youth bulge and which countries positively so? That's a great question. And I think a lot of us are, are familiar with the youth bulge in part because for so long, thinking about last century, most of our populations were young worldwide. So if you can picture in your mind where the center of gravity of a population is by age, a lot of us have seen these uh, population pyramids or population trees, these snapshots in time. And I have a lot of them in the book, of course, for, for the graphics, where you've got the bar graphs of younger ages at the bottom and older ages at the top. When we're thinking about this center of gravity in a, in a situation where fertility is generally pretty high, you're gonna have a relatively youthful population. And so uh, with our youth bulge countries, sometimes we can see an actual bulge in those that group of youth. Now a true bulge would be when it, fertility has declined. And so you actually see kind of like a baby boomer population, it popping out at the side. But I think what we're most interested in when we say youth bulge is youthful populations. And there's a reason for that. Um, colleagues of mine that have done research on this have found that when youth populations are 35% or more of the total, the chance of armed conflict is 150% higher. So it's much more likely to have outbreaks of armed conflict in particular in settings with youthful populations. And so why is the, the more important question. And it really comes down to motive and opportunity, almost like we're watching law and order here. So in a setting where you have lots of youth, if you can picture them aging into adulthood each year, but if they're bigger and bigger and bigger cohorts of youth each year, that means the demand for jobs, the demand even for education, 
the demand on housing, et cetera, that is bigger and bigger each year. Couple that with psychology, which is all of us really seem to expect that we will do better than the generation preceding us. I mean, this is a, we can, we can talk about U.S. Any, anybody's in their minds are thinking, oh yeah, there's a lot of malaise right now with a lot of generations, um, even in developed countries because of unmet expectations. So you're kind of coupling these things here. So there's a motive to their grievances and there's a motive to act against whoever is in power at the time. But there's also opportunity because there's a lower opportunity cost of engaging in violence. You just don't have that much you're giving up to get it. And so it's never that demography is destiny, which I will keep repeating as we go through this hour, because not every youthful or youth bulge country ends up in conflict, but it is that it sets a scene for that. And a lot of people uh, started talking about youth bulge and youthful age structures around the time of the Arab Spring, because demographically speaking, these areas, they were primed for an uprising. Doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen. And in fact, some of the best studies say, well, look where it didn't happen and look where it did and let's identify the factors. And that's, you know, incidentally, that's how I think we should use demographics. It's again, not deterministically, but it's a scene setter. It, in this case, it, it's the fodder, but not the spark. But we do know that when we look out at the world, while fertility has come down everywhere, which is something I'm sure we'll talk about later, there are still places in the world that have very young populations and high fertility, meaning that they'll continue to be youthful. Um, Niger, Chad, Somalia, Democratic Republic of Congo, Tanzania, Central African Republic, Afghanistan. When I say those names, I'm sure it sparks in everyone's mind that these are some of the most fragile countries in terms of governance on the planet. And so uh, these things go together. That's for sure. Terrific. Ah, thank you. Um, another idea that you go into in the book is this idea of the window of opportunity um, or the demographic dividend. And I'm not sure if they're the same or if I'm conflating terms. So, so please correct me if I'm wrong. So what is this demographic dividend? And when you're looking at the behavior of countries, can countries take advantage of this age structure transition? And, and what do they need to have in place in order to do that? I like this as the next question because you're actually taking us through a country's own demographic transition. So, you know, our countries are starting off with youthful populations. And then when we're turning down that fertility dial, which is what happens over time, that center of gravity starts to shift. So you can picture in your mind, it's center of gravity sliding up from those younger ages to the middle. And that's what we're really talking about with this window of opportunity. And I do like that phrasing more so than the dividend, because I think the word opportunity is key here. There's a chance to make something of this. And really what, and if there's a chance to reap a dividend, but of course you have to invest. I, if I want a dividend from any of my investments, I better have invested some money in the first place. So we can think about this dividend as a chance for, or the window rather, as a chance for accelerated economic growth. When we have a median age, pretty much between around 26 to 40 years. And so let me just give that a little bit of context. Median age is a great indicator for us. So anybody who's listening, who's in this business of maybe political risk analysis or thinking about where are investment opportunities, median age is useful if you picture it lining everyone in the country up from that youngest person to the oldest and you ask that middle person to raise their hand. 
So right now in Nigeria, that person is 17 years old. That tells you really where that, that uh, center of gravity is. The window of opportunity then, you have ages pretty much 26 to 40, roughly in there. So we know we're, we're up at higher ages here. So we have seen this at work in the past. Again, a scene setter, not an automatic dividend. Um, we have a chance to reap this accelerated growth the way that some East Asian economies did, for example. Um, thinking about uh, Hong Kong and Singapore and South Korea, Japan. When there are investments, so what kind of investments? Human capital is a big part of this. Do you have uh, a literate populace? Do you, have you built skills? Are they employable in a way that matches, of course, what economic opportunities there are? And then of course, there's other levers, non-demographics, such as are you open to foreign direct investment? Do you have a business-friendly climate, stable governments, et cetera? So the window of opportunity is a really, um, it's something that gives a lot of countries hope. We actually see um, some African governments have really latched onto this phrasing as a way to think positively about the huge youth populations they have. I think the danger in adopting this really positive outlook is this sense that it is destiny, that, oh, we will end up with this um, accelerated growth when it's not guaranteed. And, and, and just as a follow-up, are there any countries in who are either approaching that window of opportunity that you think are, you know, wow, they're really getting things right. They're trying to get their house in order so that they can reap this dividend or not. Are there others that you're like, mm, that might just pass them by and we're just going to need to keep an eye on them? That's a good question. And every time I think somebody has their house in order, then something happens uh, that I think, oh, well, so much for that. Uh, you know, one interesting comparison is China versus India. And I've written a lot about India lately because they just took over the spot as the world's most populous country. And I think a lot of that rhetoric was, oh, does that mean India is the next China? So India's in its window of opportunity. So we have to ask these questions. Do they have some of the same fundamentals that China had that did give them a, a more accelerated economic growth? And I'm not sure they have all of them, that's for sure, uh, particularly in human capital. And here I think about uh, ed education and literacy, especially for women. It's way lower than it should be to get the most out of uh, you know, your population. And um, I think that health is an issue as well because you know, it's, it's about framing your population as a resource not necessarily a resource to be exploited. I don't want to be so instrumental about it, but but really I'm trying to think like the government here. So, so in that case, you know, is your population a resource you've invested in? And there's a lot more India could do. They've got some real positives on some of the business climate stuff, but I worry about that human capital piece. Some other places in the window um, are Bangladesh and Mexico and Indonesia and uh, Brazil. Vietnam, those are countries that are in this window. And I think to varying degrees, they are, you know, doing the kinds of reforms needed. But like I said, if every time I think I'm going to write something about one really making it, eh, Ethiopia, actually, who's not in the window yet, they were showing so many signs of laying the groundwork to reap a future dividend. And of course, there was just terrible conflict there. So it's like fits and starts. Yeah, tremendously complex. 
what are the implications of an aging, shrinking population? And what do those shifts require from policymakers and thinkers in economics and politics in order to see a smooth transition? So we've talked about this uh, when we have these youth countries and median ages of 17, 18 years, and we moved into this middle area here. With aging countries, we need to think about much older median ages. Um, and part of your question got cut off, but I think that you're just wanting to know about what, what are the prospects of, of, of aging. Uh, I just want to make sure I heard you right. Well, well what are the prospects of aging and, and what, do gov what, what do policymakers need to think about and what do the, our, our academics need to think about? Because my understanding is that it really requires a fundamental shift in terms of how we're thinking about the economy, how we're thinking about um, politics and what the impact can be. So the, it really is just a place that we've never been before. And so you're, you're absolutely right. For sure. I mean, so when we're at these, the median ages of an aging or an aged country, if we lined everyone in Japan up from youngest to oldest, and we asked that middle person to raise their hand, they'd be almost 50 years old. So we really see the center of gravity much higher. And I do think what, you know, let me underline part of what you said here. The key is we've never seen a, sh a shift like this before. It is permanent. It is cross-national, cross-cultural. And, you know, we've seen dips in populations before, often because of um, high mortality events like plagues and flus and so on. But this is, we're talking about something really different. People's behaviors about reproduction have really changed along with the setting of much longer life expectancy. So when I think about aging, I want people to understand that every theory we've ever had about, you know, in my discipline about war and peace or about economic development, all of those were made with people in the setting of what seemed like infinite population growth. So to even wrap our heads around aging requires a lot, a very open mind and a lot of thinking. And I do think that um, we're not there yet. So right now we have mostly been saying, uh-oh, how do we keep a country from becoming aged even as it continues to progress? And so most of the effort has been on trying to raise fertility again. I think mo if you ask most, if, if someone in government, whatever government around the world is aware of population aging, and you say, tell me the biggest issue with that, they would generally say, well, I'm worried about running out of workers, so we need more babies. Now, that is the wrong approach, actually, because it doesn't work. Uh, we do not have examples of sustained fertility increase, no matter if you're putting 5% of GDP into it, such as Hungary, um, South Korea has put I think something like 216 billion, maybe 200, I mean, more than 200, more than 200 billion into raising fertility over the last 16 years. And they keep hitting record lows. There are about 0.8 children per woman on average and replacement levels considered two, one for each parent. So instead, I think, you know, yes, government should pay attention to this because it is a fundamental structural shift. And with demography as a scene setter, everything else is based on that. But again, not to see it deterministically. So, you know, there are things, I like to think of it as a menu of options. So I've heard some people say, oh, Japan will have to start opening to immigration because of aging. Well, that's on the menu. Opening to immigration is on the menu. And, and within opening to immigration is just a huge set of potential ways to do so. But a country does not have to do it. It doesn't get forced into doing it. It is a, it's a decision that people can make. 
Other things that are on that list include keeping people in the workforce longer. Uh, I don't know which one is politically more difficult, opening to immigration or telling people that they, they have to wait to collect Social Security. They're both really hard, right? You should ask uh, Emmanuel Macron. See what he <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we see really viscerally what happens when you try to, to get people to do this through a policy change, particularly in a democracy. And I think that's something for us to underline is that first wave of aging states, they really were mainly European social welfare type states. So what we started to understand about aging, when I started studying it 20 years ago, I mean, it was barely there, but our first examples were Japan, Italy, Germany, and then follow through with Europe. We have a different set of aging countries now, really different set. A quarter of our aged countries are now non-democracies. And I think we need to ask a lot more questions and, and in fact, be have a more open mind about what it looks like to have population aging in a non-democracy versus a democracy. And just to understand that there are multiple responses to this, ways to adapt, um, that it would be good if we'd start to, to learn from each other in these and also see what to avoid. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And I'm curious to see who who thinks well about this? Um, you mentioned immigration in terms of Japan. And so I wanted to move on to migration, uh, which is often described as a crisis as though there's an inflection point, but really um, a stunning point in the book is that 98% of demographic growth will take uh, place in lesser developed countries. And so with those numbers in mind and with the likelihood of climate change to drive continued migration, how do you see migration impacting geopolitics in the decades to come? Yeah, I think the, the biggest way it will impact it is that it will continue to be a point of tension. And, you know, and I know that sounds like a lame answer because what we see so many other people writing is, oh, look, waves of hundreds of millions of people are going to come you know, knocking down your door. There's a lot of fear mongering around migration and always has been. And I think climate change gave a perfect, um, uh, you know, reason for people to, to use that fear mongering. And we simply don't, I, I don't see it because I'm a political scientist. I'm trained in political science. And when I look at migration, I think the migration of the future looks a lot like the migration of the past. It's actually not as wildly unpredictable as many politicians make it out to seem. It follows the really predictable paths which I talk about in the migration chapter of my book. It's one of the chapters that I like the most because I think it adds so much more sense into this discussion and walks us back. I mean, you can tell I'm an anti-alarmist in general, but with migration, let's really walk it back because politics is a very effective gatekeeper. And I know that we it can seem as if it's not when we have, uh, look at the Southern border of the United States right now. But if we, let's you know go a little further here, it is still an effective gatekeeper because look at how so many of those people are being used as pawns in the political system. I mean, directly moved as pawns in the system. And, you know, even looking in, in Western Europe, post uh, influx of Syrians, look at asylum rates and how low they went. So politics is strong. That's a long answer to when we think about climate migration as part of larger environmental migration, it has always been the case that people have had to move or, or, or suffer from things like droughts and floods and so on. 
but borders are pretty strong in this system we have today. So most of this migration is internal. We know that if it is a natural disaster, a sudden um, you know, climate event, people will often move in the short term, but try to get back. And then we know with these longer um, changes in climate um, that people may try to move, but most people really do want to stay. You see people doing their best they can to stay. And when they move, they're just not guaranteed that there's any place to go. So rather than seeing future climate migration as through the eyes of um, you know, the West, we instead, I think, need to see it through the eyes of the people who are displaced and realize that they may have nowhere to go, just like so many conflict refugees have had nowhere to go. Great. Thank you. Um, if you wouldn't mind just bearing with me with this last question, um, and I, I, I hope I can get it out right. Um, you know, what, what I find, find really interesting is that over the past few centuries, there have been different inflection points where people talk about the limits of growth. And, you know, Thomas Malthus in the 18th century to, you know, the 1970s, you had limits of growth. Um, and that latter period, it seemed like, gave rise to a lot of strict family planning in some countries like China or Romania that were almost draconian. Um, in your opinion, were those policies necessary to respond to the concerns of the time? Um, so in other words, like, is there a risk that in flagging a potential problem that seems to continually crop up, you know, harsh measures may be implemented, you know, potentially unnecessarily, or, or did that actually help kind of get us to this point right now where we're seeing this shrinking population and now are we going to, you know, go in the other direction? Yeah. That's a good question. And I really think it's kind of, it's kind of two questions, you know, one, were they necessary? No, they weren't necessary. And we can say that uh, as a blanket statement because we do know that uh, fertility would keep coming down. We see it go, go down. Uh, in a lot of places, it was already heading down when some of these harsher measures were put in place. And so um, we don't ever need coercion, full stop. We want, if we have family planning, rights-based family planning is the way to go. But in fact, I think it's an important lesson for us that there was this coercion because I very much worry about my own uh, platform and how I sit here all the time and bring up population as an issue. And I've done it, you know, for 20 years. And when I was more naive in my younger years, I talked a lot more about population and conflict. <clears throat> I talked a lot more about youth and um, risk. But then I started to see that there were risks even to that kind of rhetoric because of exactly what you said. When... Uh, someone in leadership, someone in power starts to see population as a problem, then the solution set you have no control over. And I think it is notable that a quarter of our aged countries are non-democracies. And I really worry, I used to have this sticky note until it fell off on my, my screen right here that said, are coercive policies more likely in non-democracies to bring fertility up? And so that is really the key reason why I'm a non-alarmist and why I, I don't think it's good for everyone to go um, beating the drum that or the sky is falling because of aging, because what could happen if aging is seen as nothing but a problem and low fertility is nothing but a problem? Well, then women's bodies are the only solution out of this. And so we must make them have as many babies as possible. I think that's a real danger. Um, and in fact, I've been told by some uh, regional experts, and I'm not, you know, going to go into discussion about this, but where we've seen at maybe some of the more local levels in aging countries, uh, governments actually moving in that direction, which is not good. So, you know, I, no demographic 
trend is inherently good or bad. It's just Goldilocks here. We had this, we had decades and decades of people saying too many people. And now we have, we're entering an era of too few people. And we never had this moment where that porridge was just the right temperature, you know? And I think it's really a failure of our own imagination to think about our population, all of the things that the ways that we we amplify or dilute the power of population through non-population related policies. Thank you. Uh, we have a question about China. Do we see in the news how China is facing a major demographic crisis with regards to its aging population as a result of its one child policy? Um, how will Chinese power be constrained over the longer term by demographics and resource scarcity? So I would say China's facing a major demographic shift not a major demographic crisis. Uh, and that is because I say that on purpose because I think that what I've seen throughout my career is, there, and this is not you questioner, this is me, me kind of zooming out to let me tell you about some four-star generals I used to have to brief on this, for example. People walk in to, to, to look at demographic data with bias and they don't necessarily realize it. So the people who see China's demographics as the biggest crisis tend to be people who would benefit if China is in a demographic crisis. So throughout the military, for example, um, when I was at the Pentagon in the mid 2000s, people were looking at Russia and saying, look at this publicly. They have just the most dire demographics. They're losing 600,000 people a year. We've got male life expectancy of 54 years. It's very bad. Fertility is low. We don't have to worry about them as a threat. And I caution that over and over in the book, just to bring it to how you, you started us off. I, I wrote that book and cautioned against it before Russia is in Ukraine. And I think China, there's a danger of doing the same thing with China. So I'm always throwing caution to the, the foresight community, the U.S. military community, and even the business community, because I don't, I don't think demography is destiny in that sense. There's still a lot of people in China. And in fact, let me reiterate that they aging looks different in China than in France. And when we take the lessons of Western Europe and apply those to China, it does look like probably a crisis there. We can run some math, but it's not the same setting. The promises to the elderly are way, are they minuscule compared to the promises in a European social welfare state. The ability of the government in China to marshal resources towards whatever their goal may be is quite high and quite effective without the same kinds of checks and balances. So I want to actually want to swing our thinking to say maybe it's the U.S. that's in a crisis. We have the same median age as China. Now, our population is still growing because of immigration, but we have the same median age. And in fact, all the world's great powers, they look somewhat similar demographically. So it's not the population element that will determine who comes out on top. It's what they do with that. Thank you. And because you mentioned Russia, um, we have a question here and they write, we have witnessed the shrinking of Russia's population for over a decade, as you mentioned, uh, with will the current war in Ukraine with its high casualties continue this trend? Or do you think that there will be other additional factors contributing to the population loss? Uh, yes, for sure. It will keep it going. Uh, you know, we we know that in times of war, um, particularly in areas where people have some control over their reproduction, 
you're you're not going to see a spike in fertility come out of this because uh, it matters how people view the future. That that's something. It's one of these almost intangible things that we try to measure when we understand fertility behavior. People don't feel optimistic about the future. They don't want to bring babies into this world. We know there's higher mortality um, knocking out men um, either because they've left or because they've died who would have been of reproductive ages, et cetera, et cetera, a compounding this low fertility issue. Thank you. And um, and on the, the flip side of that question, um, we have Ukraine. Uh, and this was the second part of the question that I forgot to get to. And so the questioner wants to know what the effect of the war might be on Ukraine's on the population of Ukraine, especially because they had low fertility rates to begin with. Oh, so take what I said about Russia and just stick Ukraine in there. But I think for both of them, I mean, really, because you can even look, our, one of the first things that got me uh, excited about demographics as a field of study, which I remain excited about, was um, an event I attended really early in grad school. So really 20 years ago, um, probably. And uh, it was at the Population Reference Bureau, which I sit on the board of now, it's kind of funny, but it was about why is fertility in Eastern Europe so low? And they were looking at post-Soviet um, conditions. And I think that's, you can kind of take the, all the reasons it was low in this post-Soviet era about um, economic stresses uh, and a dim, a dim view of the future and put those on with Ukraine plus out migration, et cetera. I mean, a lot of Eastern European countries in general have seen declining populations from out migration plus low fertility. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and what I find particularly ironic is I was in Russia because I, that was my field of study um, and so I was in Russia after the first, right after, right around the first invasion of Ukraine. It was fascinating because um, at that moment when I was there, I had noticed actually a difference in the way that the population was acting um, just in terms of, I think, you know, more healthful lifestyle, you know, more exercising, less smoking. And so it almost seemed like they were on this precipice of going in one direction and then you know, perhaps it shifted as entirely yeah, anecdotal. All that but, show up in some yeah. of the indicators about um, mortality. So uh, it's a shame for the population. Yeah. Terrific. Um, in, the, in the few minutes that we have remaining, are there investments that, that you could see um, helping shift the population age structure toward the window of opportunity that, that you would like to elaborate on? You know, I'll just reiterate that trifecta yeah. of, of, you know, legally, what can you do in terms of um, child marriage? Because, you know, if if we think about a woman's reproductive ages, when you have people get married younger and younger, 14, 13 years old, 15 years old, it's not great for their bodies to start reproducing at super young ages. Of course, um, higher chances of maternal mortality, um, get they miss opportunities for education, et cetera. Uh, they're also possibly more likely to have more children. India is an interesting case because often people have completed childbearing by their early 20s. So I sit with that. Uh, but, um, you know, that's one um, education. In um, Botswana, for example, we've seen emphasis on secondary education for girls and that being related to um, fertility there. In fact, Botswana's total fertility rate is about half of that for the surrounding region. Um, in part because of education and because family planning rights-based is made free and available to people. So I think those are, that's a package of reforms um, or policies that has broader social dividends besides just a population target. All right. So one final question. Um, 
through your lens of demography, what keeps you up at night and what gives you hope when you're looking out um, at the world in terms of you know, how people are approaching demographics? That is a great question. So I have been um, keep, kept up at night lately thinking about responses to low fertility and even my own role in um, raising awareness that low fertility is here to stay and it is widespread. And I worry, I now have no control over what people do for a policy response to that. And I worry about coercion. Um, I even worry about what it does to, you know, there are so many podcasts I've been on where people say, why aren't women having more babies? And it's, it's always phrased to me that way. So again, it's like, you know, Hey lady, you had too many. Now you have too few that, that, that really, um, that's really troubling. And I think will continue to be for the next 10 or 20 years at least here. But I do feel hopeful. So I've spent most of my career um, <laughs> pointing out a lot of the problems. I taught environmental politics at the college level for about 15 years. And some of my students would call my courses the apocalypse courses because it just didn't look like there was a lot of good news. But when I had to sit and write that book and I got to the end, what a, and this is the reason to write one. You write, you should write because you learn something. And that zooming out made me feel very optimistic because when you're forced to zoom out and look at 8 billion people, rather than these people suffering in this one village, for example, you see that we have made huge strides in lengthening life expectancy. Um, Steven Johnson is an author I like, and, and he wrote a book called Extra Life, thinking you know, we have gained, in essence, an extra life in terms of life expectancy. Non-communicable diseases are um, now the number one killer, which is good news because it's not communicable diseases. Low fertility is good news in the sense that people are confident kids will live to longer ages. So I think generally I feel optimistic about where we have come from and where we are going. We just need to be aware of the dangers in seeing population generally as a problem to be solved. Well, that seems like a good note to end on. Uh, Jennifer Shuba, thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation. Um, I, I really did love your book and, and I think it gives such an interesting lens through which to look at the world and, and an extremely critical one. So thank you so much for taking your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you everyone for listening and for the terrific questions. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Global Insights. Network 2020 is a nonprofit organization, and your generous donations allow us to continue bringing you critical discussions on global affairs. To support our work or become a member, visit us at network2020.org.